Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Colts and Coffee. I'm Bryn. And what is new in life aside from the hard day's work of creating a human? So I went to Pittsburgh this weekend to celebrate Kelsey, also creating my niece, which was super fun. I'm so excited for Carson and her to bring that little bean into this world. And her sisters did a beautiful job of throwing her a shower in Pittsburgh. I also actually have a new show recommendation, believe it or not. I'm not too far in, but I can say with certainty that so far this is a good one. My mom and I started watching Firefly Lane on Netflix and I love. Without any spoilers, let me know if you've watched it and what you thought. And if you haven't, do it. I am telling you, I got sucked in right away. Podcast-wise, I'm just listening to the usual, so nothing new on my end there. Again, if you have any recommendations you want to send my way, please do. I'm always looking for new things to watch, read, and listen to. Plus, then once I do, I'll have more to recommend on here for other listeners. So due to the fact that I'm stuck in the can't-handle-coffee-at-certain-moments-right-now realm... I'm going to sadly be giving you all another coffee recipe this episode. I'm hoping just as much as you are that I'll be back to my normal coffee reviews in no time. I had a coffee this morning and I was able to drink maybe four sips of it, but sadly I have also reviewed that one before. Otherwise, I totally would have at least had four sips to do a review off of. So, Here we go again. Coffee recipe of this episode is an Almond Joy iced coffee, which sounds pretty dang good if I must say. For this iced coffee, you need to make two separate components of it. You need to make an Almond Joy syrup and the coffee itself. So for the Almond Joy syrup, you're going to need water, granulated sugar, cocoa powder, almond extract, and coconut extract. And then for the coffee itself, you're going to need one cup of cold coffee, coconut milk, almond joy syrup, and ice. So the instructions are pretty short and sweet. It says for this syrup, bring water, sugar, and cocoa powder to a simmer until the sugar dissolves. Remove from heat and stir in almond extract and coconut extract. Allow to cool, then store in the refrigerator in an airtight container. To assemble the coffee, fill the glass with the desired amount of ice, add coffee, coconut milk, and syrup, stir together, and enjoy. And then they had also said, and it shows it in the picture that I'll post, that you can drizzle around the inside of the glass before you were to pour the coffee in to add that chocolatey, drippy cool look and then you can also sprinkle around the rim with shredded coconut it looks amazing and please someone try this since i can't right now because i have major fomo just looking at this coffee i want to try it so bad but my body won't allow me to at the moment so as soon as i can i'm going to try all these coffees that i've been planning on trying for so long now and especially the ones from last week and this week, please, if you try it, again, let me know how it tastes, if it's worth it. Otherwise, I will let you know once I'm able to. I'm sure you miss the coffee bean ratings as much as I do. 
They will be back ASAP. I can't wait to talk about all those beans and what I think of all the amazing coffee roasters and coffee shops that have yet to come. Just like today's coffee recipe, I kept this intro short and sweet. And without further ado, I will get into today's episode. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. This week, I am going to be talking about a case that involves something that I haven't discussed on the podcast in a while, even though it is included in our podcast name. I am talking about a family that is considered a cult. Some refer to them as a cult, some refer to them as a clan, but either way, they fall within that realm because of the happenings that occurred within the family. So this episode does come with a trigger warning. This case includes physical, sexual, emotional, and mental abuse, including that of children. It also includes incest and murder. So if this is something that could be triggering for you or an episode that you typically wouldn't want to hear, please skip this week's episode and tune in to an older one. I'm going to be honest when I say that this episode is very disturbing, especially considering the fact that it involves children, and I didn't realize how disturbing this case was until I had already dove into my research with it because I didn't know very much about this one. So just a forewarning for those who are about to listen. This episode is about the Wesson Vampire Clan. A little bit of background, the story took place in Fresno, California. The Wesson family included the following. Marcus Wesson, who was the patriarch of the family. He was the father and grandfather to all the children born into the Wesson clan. He was a supporter of the lifestyle of Branch Davidian leader David Koresh, who was covered in episode 24 of this podcast. Wesson had even used the Waco siege as an example for his children and the lifestyle they should be living in the name of the Lord. I'm going to skip around all of his childhood slash early life info because frankly it isn't important except for a few key points. He was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist and according to him his mom was quote-unquote a religious fanatic. His dad was allegedly an alcoholic and child abuser, and he also left when Wesson was a kid. Sometime between 1968 and 1970, he moved in with a woman named Rosemary Solorio. She had eight children, and in 1971, Rosemary and Wesson had a son. During this time, Wesson had also met his future wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was one of Rosemary Solorio's children. When she was eight years old, Wesson began abusing and manipulating her. Elizabeth said that at that age, she had already been told by Wesson that she was chosen by the Lord to be his wife and belonged to him. At 14, Elizabeth became pregnant with his child, and he legally married her when she was 14 or 15 years old. There was deferring information in different articles, but either way, she became Mrs. Elizabeth Wesson, which is so sickening 
Actually, what's a more extreme word for nauseated? Because I'm absolutely beyond that. By 26 years old, Elizabeth had given birth to 11 children. In 1989, Wesson was convicted of perjury and welfare fraud. So growing up in the Wesson family, Elizabeth Wesson was kept from being involved in raising the kids. So remember, Elizabeth was the daughter of his original person he was with, Rosemary. Elizabeth was the daughter that he then had 11 children with. So she was kept from being involved in raising the kids. He was in charge of everything. Her daughters were not allowed to even talk to her. He controlled what they ate, wore, and who they talked to. Hence the reason this is considered a cult, among other things that are to come. The children were frequently beaten by him, and he used items such as tree branches and cable cords ripped straight from the wall to inflict pain. If they moved or made a noise during these beatings, the beating would last longer. The children of the Wessons had very different experiences growing up. The sons were kept separately from the daughters, and the boys claimed that they were raised as Seventh-day Adventists and knew nothing of what was going on in regards to their sisters. They deeply respected and looked up to their father, and even with enduring those beatings, some articles said that they had described him as gentle. The girls of the Wesson family, however, were living a completely different experience. Kiani Wesson, who was the daughter of Wesson, Sabrina Wesson, who was also the daughter of Wesson, Rosa Solorio, the niece of Wesson, Sophina, Solorio, and Ruby Ortiz, also the nieces of Wesson. He had an incestuous relationship with all five of these women. He went as far as marrying them as children and then having children with them. His niece, Ruby, said that her uncle's molestation started when she was eight. When she was 13, she was told that she was now the age to marry him. He also told her that, quote, God wants man to have more than one wife. And, quote, God's people are becoming extinct. We need to preserve God's children. We need to have more children for the Lord. And those were quotes from allthatsinteresting.com. Kiani and Rosa, however, had stated at one point that there was never anything forcible and that anything that happened was by choice. This later changed. A quote from Kiani from ABC News, quote, I thought it was okay because we were being a surrogate mom, a surrogate mother. So that's just how I justified it. I was always afraid to disobey the rules or leave because I felt I would be cursed. To not have my dad's blessing or to not be blessed by Jesus, I didn't want that. It was also noted that the abuse was all she had ever known, so she had never seen it as wrong while growing up. A few articles stated that Wesson ended up having 18 children slash grandchildren, all conceived within his family, making him the father slash grandfather slash great uncle to these kids. Not sure if this number included Kiani and Sabrina, or if this was outside of them, 
but other articles stated that he had a family of 20, so they were around that number in total as a family. He went as far as having the family live in complete seclusion for around 12 years. During this time, they lived in an army surplus tent. The children were also kept out of school, and he homeschooled them. They moved around and lived in different places, such as trailers, makeshift shacks, and a rotted boat. Here is a quote from Wesson's daughter Gypsy about other living situations and seclusion they were forced to endure. Quote, Wesson forced the family to live below deck on a rusted-out sailboat for four or five months at a time. So here's where she starts speaking. It felt like being in a prison, very depressing, and you felt trapped, like there was nowhere to go. We stayed below deck on the boat because if we were above deck, people would see us and question, why aren't we in school? He couldn't have that happening. And that was a quote from ABC News. And the time frame slash exact years that they were made to do this was unclear. What was clear was what happened on March 12, 2004. Ruby Ortiz and Sofina Solorio showed up at the home of Wesson with friends and other relatives beside them. The women had heard that Wesson was going to up and move the family from Fresno to Washington State. They argued with Wesson that they wanted him to give their children to them. Ruby and Sophina were afraid that all contact with their children would be severed if he were to leave with them. Definitely a reason that they were at their house trying to fight for their rights to their children and to get them back and out of his hands. Police were called by concerned neighbors and arrived to the home at 761 Hammond Ave in Fresno, California. Not long after their arrival, Wesson went back into the house and locked the door behind him. Over the course of a few minutes, multiple gunshots were heard, and there is deferring information again in articles, some stating that police did not hear these gunshots, but neighbors did, some saying that police did hear the gunshots. Either way, people said that they heard gunshots. After the shots stopped, Wesson again emerged from the home, this time covered in blood. He was arrested on scene. Upon entering the home, police found nine bodies in a back bedroom. They were stacked one on top of another. They all had a gunshot wound to the head, through the eye, from a 22 caliber handgun. They included seven children under the age of 12, all of which were grandchildren and children of Wesson. Illabelle was eight years old. She was his daughter-slash-granddaughter. Aviv was seven, the daughter-slash-grandniece. Jonathan, age seven, son-slash-grandnephew. Ethan, age four, son-slash-grandnephew. Marshy, age one, son-slash-grandson. Jiva, age one, daughter-slash-granddaughter. And Sedona, age one, daughter-slash-grandniece. Also murdered that day were Elizabeth Briani Kina Wesson, who was 17, and Sabrina April Wesson, who was 25. My heart is absolutely breaking for this family. 
What were the beliefs of Wesson? Over the years, Wesson had convinced his family of many beliefs under his own religious guise. Aside from him being incestual and a pedophile, and also believing in the practices of David Koresh, which included multiple wives, being the patriarch of the family and the only one to bear children with these women, and the Lord, quote-unquote, instructing him to do so. Wesson had other beliefs that he imposed upon his family and the cult he created within his household. He created his own handwritten Bible and taught the kids from this. So this was part of their homeschooling teaching, if not all of it. One of the things that he taught the girls from a young age was that they would eventually become his wives. Even more vile, and this is a quote, his school quote-unquote curriculum involves teaching girls oral sex as young as eight or nine. Their domestic responsibilities included washing Wesson's dreads and scratching his armpits and head. And that was a quote from Wiki. He also claimed that Jesus was a vampire Not only this, but he felt that he was Jesus. Because of this, his children were told to call him Master or Lord. Therefore, he thought that Jesus slash himself, quote, held the link to eternal life. He wrote in his own homemade Bible that, quote, drinking blood was the key to immortality. And that was a quote from allthatsinteresting.com. He also imposed the belief on his family that if anyone tried to separate them, quote, we would all go to heaven. They were prepped by him for Armageddon, and leaning even more into the vampire-slash-morbid side of things, a couple months before murdering members of his family, Wesson bought a dozen antique caskets. According to him, they had been used for wood and beds for his kids, so I wonder if he had them sleep in the coffins like vampires, or if he knew all along that their lives would eventually be taken. On to the trial and aftermath. Wesson originally tried to claim that his daughter-slash-wife, Sabrina Wesson, was the one that brought everyone into the back room of the home that day and shot them. It was then said that she committed suicide after the fact. His defense lawyers presented it this way at trial, and they argued that the gun was found with her body and that her DNA was present on the gun. However, even though it could not be proven that he actually fired the shots, the jury found him guilty. They presumed that either way, Wesson, quote, had pressured his children into entering a suicide pact. And that was a quote from Wiki. June 17, 2005, he was convicted of nine counts of first-degree murder. He was also charged with 14 sex crimes. June 27, 2005, Wesson received the death penalty. He was to die by lethal injection. He is now on death row in San Quentin State Prison. After his conviction, some of Wesson's family members had shown support towards their father-slash-husband, But, as time moved forward, they began to see the true evil and manipulation that he inflicted upon their family. So, 
lots of therapy probably, lots of deprogramming from his mental games, psychological, physical, sexual abuse that they literally knew their entire lives from this man. They now openly discuss their grief, hopes for the future, and how they had been brainwashed by the psychotic man that controlled their lives. Honestly, if you look into some of their present-day lives, it's so incredible the people they became coming out of this and how not only strong they were to turn their lives around, but to become the people that they are today after everything they went through and the life they lived that they didn't know was wrong for the longest time at the hands of this disgusting human being. This story is just so devastating with the trauma that these people endured within their family and the murders that occurred as well, the beautiful lives that were taken that never even got to see a life outside of the horrors within that house. But again, it's amazing that the members of this family that did survive are now out there living their best lives and that this absolute monster of a man is locked up in jail and has nothing to look forward to except for when his life will come to an end, if he even cares. I mean, people like that usually don't. But again, I'm glad that the family is able to live a completely different life now and know the joys of the world and what family should be like. So even though this episode was on the shorter side today, it did come with a lot of heavy information. And because of that, luckily we have a listener story that was sent in by someone. Thank you, Nicole, for sending in a listener story. I'm going to give her story a read. I have not read this yet. Hopefully it's on the lighter side or spookier side and isn't as heavy as the case that I just covered, but we shall see. Let me get into it. From the ages of 5 to 18, I grew up in a religious retreat center, which used to be a boarding school. Everything from the school stayed for the first few years, as if every student went away for summer break and would soon start roaming the property once again. In the former dean's department, meant for maybe one or two people, lived my parents, five children, two dogs, and our cat. All of us crammed together to drive each other crazy. Naturally, when we first moved in, we were curious about the four-story building we occupied a small corner of. The first few weeks consisted of us searching cabinets, looting the fun finds, and being the adventurous explorers of our dreams. One day, after school, my sister and I were playing in the lobby, jumping from couch to couch until we grew bored. She was still jumping when I took a break and looked in a cabinet, where I found a yearbook left behind. Ooh, I got the chills! Flipping through the black and white photos of people who I didn't know, one stood out among the rest. A photo of a person hanging from a tree, a black blur where a face should be. Shocked by what I saw, I called my sister to verify this wasn't my imagination. She too saw the photo, and we went to grab our older sisters, leaving the yearbook behind, not thinking to take it with us. In the few minutes it took to get them, the yearbook had vanished. 
Years later, the memory long gone from our minds and into our teenage years, we never thought about that photo again until my friends were exploring without me. I was finishing up chores when the frantic knock came. I answered the door to the bewildered faces of three of my friends telling me I had to see their find. Just like before, they didn't think to take the yearbook to show me, and just like before, it was gone. Oh my god! They told me they found the yearbook in the same cabinet I had found it the first time. When they were explaining to me what they saw, they noticed something I didn't. From the window next to the cabinet, you could see the very tree from which the figure hung. The same window where no matter where you stood in the lobby, I would always get the feeling I was being watched. I only ever heard of one or two other people finding the yearbook after that. Eventually, the lobby was remodeled and the cabinet was thrown away. The yearbook never reappeared in the remaining years I lived in that building. I always figured the yearbook disappeared because they got rid of the cabinets because the feeling of being watched from that window disappeared right along with it. Oh my gosh. Listeners, please tell me if you had chills the entire time during that story like I did. That is the creepiest fucking thing It almost reminds me of the ring when they found the tape, but the tape (laughs) didn't disappear like this freaking yearbook did. How is that possible? What is this yearbook? What happened to it? Is it still floating around in the universe? What is this picture that was in it? I want to know. There are so many unanswered questions with this. Can we somehow figure this out? Nicole, can we somehow figure this out? I'm almost wondering if not that specific yearbook, if there's archives somewhere, if you can remember the name or the year that was on this yearbook, if you can look into those archives and see if that picture actually existed in that yearbook, that would be insane. Just again, so many freaking questions with this one. I have so much more to ask you. (laughs) This is amazing. Thank you for writing this in. I appreciate it so much. I'm sure The listeners listening appreciate it so much. And hey, if you appreciated Nicole's story that much, maybe you should write in one of your own. Now let's take a segue ride into the spiel. You can find CCC on Instagram where I post pics of the coffee reviewed. The highlights tabs will show you the coffee from past episodes, what the cases were from past episodes, any important information going along with the podcast, Really cool reposts from listeners who put amazing things on their stories that I cannot bear to part with, so I just repost it and save it forever and ever. If you go to our bio, the link tree has some of the listening platforms that the podcast is on. Facebook at Crime Colts and Coffee is where I put resources, photos, links, calls to action, any important information correlated to the episode, you can also always find those calls to action in the show notes of the episode you're listening to. You just give it a little clicky click, you scroll down, and that's where your show notes are. If you have a listener story like Nicole or a case suggestion, please email me at crimecoltsandcoffee at gmail.com. 
or DM me on Instagram at Crime Colts and Coffee. Again, the listener story flow is a little bit weak right now. And thanks to Nicole, I had a story to give you all today. I love hearing these stories so much. Honestly, if enough people would write in, I'd probably make little episodes or mini-sodes, as Karen and Georgia from My Favorite Murder likes to call them, of your listener stories because that's how much I love them. That's how much I love reading them and they just make me so happy. And even when they're absolutely terrifying, they're just so fun to read. Also, if you like this podcast, you can leave a rate and review if your listening platform allows you to do so. This might be on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and if you can't leave a rate and review on any listening platform of your choice, you can like, you can follow, you can subscribe, and that will let you know when new episodes come out each week. And until next week, please, if you find any creepy freaking yearbooks, send those stories my way. Even if you find a creepy tree and you feel it's haunted and something weird happened or a creepy cave or you had a weird dream, send those my way. I will appreciate it and I'm sure listeners will appreciate it. And until next week, bye. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook